Well, we continue our series now, and the attribute I'm going to look at today is the attribute of love. And as I thought about the fact that God is love, I immediately went to the apostle of love, as scholars have called him. The apostle John, one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, um, is called the apostle of love because he uses that word so much in his writings. He wrote the gospel that bears his name. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. And love is all over there. Furthermore, he refers to himself in his gospel as the one whom Jesus loved, rather than speak of himself in the third person. He, as John, he, he did it that way. So he's been dubbed the, the apostle of love. Now, my text today is this, this passage from the epistle that Jim just read to us, uh, 1 John 4. And I want to do an experiential thing to get us started. Sometimes hearing that love is in the passage a lot doesn't quite convey the same sense of experiencing that it's there. And what made me think of this was an experience I had with uh, Toastmasters. If you're familiar with that organization, it's, uh, it's an organization that helps people get better at public speaking. And one of the things I learned early on in that group is there is a way of helping speakers not use audible pauses. Um, ah, uh, you know, those kind of things. Every time you do that, they just politely, with a fork, ding their glass. I learned really quickly how many audible pauses I had. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read you six verses, that preaching text, and I want you to just get your snapper out, and I want you to just quietly snap every time you hear the word love or a derivation of it, like beloved, Okay. So, you ready? See if you can do better at this than the nine o'clock service did. (laughs) Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son Just like them. Same spot, too. (laughs) Continuing in verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If I counted correctly, there are 15 times in those few verses. That's a lot of love. It's really important. Now, not only is love in this book a lot, love is in the world a lot, but it's conflated. It's, um, It's confused because we in English use the word love to pick up multiple words in Greek that they have to nuance it. So three common Greek words that you'll recognize. One is eros, from which we get the word erotic, and it speaks of sexual love. And someone once said, eros is the kind of love that only takes. The next one is phileo, from which we get the term Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And that kind of love gives and takes. And then the other one is agape, which is the self-sacrificial kind of love, the kind of love that loves for the sake of the beloved. And it's all give. It doesn't need anything in return. It just gives for the sake of the beloved. Now, in this passage, every one of those times that word love occurred was agape. It was that kind of love. That's the word of love that is most often used to describe God. Now, when we have a study like this and we're, and we're looking into the concept of God being love, we run into two problems right away. One is that we tend to define love from our experience rather than from revealed truth. So 
all of us have experienced love in one of those ways throughout life, but not necessarily a good experience of it. So I think of how many songs um, speak of love, and this will date me, but immediately I thought of the song, What's Love Got to Do With It by Tina Turner, and she dismisses it as a secondhand emotion, right? She's speaking of it from the feeling side of love more than the, the choice. Love is both a feeling and a choice. So romantically, we talk about being in love, but then at a wedding, we'll read 1 Corinthians 13 often, which speaks of the choice. You know, I choose to love you whether I feel like it or not. Any marriage that's going to function has to have the choice. We all want the feeling, which will come and go, but it's the choice. God loves us by choice. He chooses to love us. And of course, he also feels as well. But in 1 Corinthians, when, when that passage is read, it's interesting to um, have the couple insert their name for the word love. So love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Feelings end. This kind of love never ends. It's the higher form of love. And in in that passage, it's agape as well in the Greek. That word is the one that's in there all the time. But we tend to define it based on our experience, and we tend to be more on the feeling side than the choice side. Another problem defining love from our own experience is we can elevate it to an unhealthy level. So John says God is love, but the reverse is not true. Love is not God. But many people write songs as though it is. The Beatles said, all you need is love. It elevates love to a place that is so high. Think about some love songs that are out there and Occasionally, there's one that I'll hear and I'll think, if I substituted the name Christ for love in this song, every place I hear it, this would be an amazing worship song because the song is worshiping love. And that's not good. That's idolatry. The second problem here is that big theological word that we kind of tripped over, propitiation. Another Toastmasters thing is the word of the day. If you're the speaker in Toastmasters, they'll give you the word of the day and they put it in front of your lectern and and you're supposed to casually work that word into your speech. Well, go ahead this day and try and work propitiation into your speech and your talk throughout the day. I'll give you a dollar. They give you a quarter or something if you do it. See, the problem is we don't even know what propitiation is. I'm grateful though that the ESV put it in here and I'm grateful for an understanding of what it is theologically. You see, propitiation is an atoning sacrifice that appeases wrath, that appeases wrath. And that's why that word is not so popular in some of the translations. We don't like the idea that God could have wrath. It embarrasses us. It somehow makes us feel like it's beneath his character. Again, speaking from human experience, we think of human wrath, which tends to be capricious. It tends to be um, a feeling that comes and goes, and it's, it's difficult. We get angry. We fly off the handle, so to speak. We, we don't have a consistent and good kind of wrath. We have the bad kind. The psalm that we read, Psalm 4, verse 4, said, be angry and do not sin. The problem is you have to be angry to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose in the right way, and we almost never are. Yet God always is. And his wrath is his disposition against sin, his hatred of sin. 
In him is light and no darkness at all. God will never accept sin. His wrath is against it. And yet he is love. And so we, we misunderstand this word, propitiation, because we don't like it. We don't like the thought that God actually would have wrath. Now, if you go back to the 1928 prayer book that we use at the early service, although the language is cumbersome because we don't speak like Shakespeare today, the theology of it is spot on. The confession, which somebody said I should have used today in the confession time, but I don't have it in the screen and we're not going to, but it's it's verbose, but it's accurate. It, It talks about bewailing our manifold sins. And it says, which, and wretchedness, which are justly, provoking thy wrath and indignation against us. In the confession, we say, my sin has correctly, justly provoked your wrath and indignation against me. That's a weighty confession, but it's biblical. It's true. It's accurate. So in the 1930s, a scholar named C.H. Dodd did some loose grammatical work and decided the word shouldn't be propitiation. It should be expiation. Another word you will never hear in normal conversation. It's a theological word. Expiation means atonement to cover sin. And and the difference is it has the sin in view, not the wrath. See, there's a slight difference. In propitiation, the wrath of God is the important thing that has to be dealt with. With expiation, we're just looking at the sin and not asking questions of causation. Why? Why do we have to deal with the sin? Because God has wrath against it. Now, this is all related to God's love, and I'm going to get there in a second, but I want us to understand something that's really important about God's love. His love and his wrath are two sides of the same coin, and they can't be separated out. Now, thankfully, a- another scholar came along uh, not long after that, Leon Morris, and he did good grammatical work and showed that it's impossible to translate the Greek word as expiation. It, it is propitiation. That is correct. And, and, it, and it's It's right. It's good. It's what needs to be here. But we run the risk of the heretic Marcion. In the year 144 AD, a guy named Marcion fought through this, and he had a problem with the passages that talk about God's wrath, because he was comparing God to the Greco-Roman gods who were very fickle. They needed to be um, persuaded you needed to win their favor with your sacrifices and your offerings, and you could win one God's favor and lose another, and it was this game. It was, there was a lot of jealousy in the pantheon and these kind of gods. And so what Marcion did is he saw Yahweh, which we said two weeks ago is the name God gave Moses for himself. I am, Yahweh is the Greek or the Hebrew word for existence. He said Yahweh is just a jealous tribal God of the Jews. The heavenly father, as Jesus talks about, the God of the New Testament, he's the true and loving and good God. The God of the Old Testament is bad. The God of the New Testament is good. That has been denounced as a major heresy. And he was, he was cast out of the church. He was labeled a heretic appropriately. Because what Marcion failed to recognize is there's a ton of God's love in the Old Testament. Starting with Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned and they're in shame and nakedness hiding, God goes to them, provides clothing to cover their shame and their nakedness, and then he pronounces favor on them and says, in terms of the the serpent, you, he will strike at your heel and you will crush his head. Meaning the offspring of you, Jesus, will crush Satan. God's favor was with his people. His love was present right there at the beginning. It didn't enter in in the New Testament. It's there all the way through. Furthermore, the New Testament has quite a bit of passages that speak of wrath as well. 
Romans 1.18, the Apostle Paul comes right out and says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. He's not mixing his words there at all. Or you think about God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira in the early church as the Holy Spirit was working and doing great deeds. They tried to pretend like they were being generous and lied to the Holy Spirit. And on that moment, they died, hit the ground dead after Peter pronounced judgment against them. And wrath, wrath in the church. It's like, ah, the whole church had fear, appropriately so. They feared this God, God of wrath, but also God of love. And then if you look at the cross, it's not just a death. There's something worse going on there. The Son of God was taking the wrath of God that belonged to us on himself. So it wasn't just a death. It was torture. It was mockery. It was being, he was spat upon. They put him in a purple robe, and then they put a crown of thorns on him, and the soldiers all bowed down and mocked him as king. And then they beat him even worse. And they, I mean, it wasn't just an execution. Something else was going on there to show us the significance of sin and the wrath of God. Marcion seemed to miss all of this. Now, the way that God is able to be consistent of character, be love, and also be against sin is, is the cross. The propitiation was offered by God to satisfy his own wrath in our behalf. So I like, again, John Stott says this, rather than condone sin, God's love finds a way to expose it because he is light and in him is no darkness and consume it because he's an all-consuming fire without destroying the sinner because he is love. God did all this for us. Now, to the text, what do we do with it? John is incredibly theological. He's richly theological, but he's ever practical. He's not just up here. He wants to bring it down to real life. So in verse seven, he says this, beloved, let us love one another. Let us love one another. There's the application. He wants us to have love for one another. And he gives us in this, this section three reasons why. The first one is this. He says, because God is love. Not God has love, like, like a quality that he can tap into every once in a while. Like we would compartmentalize our lives. I can be loving over here and not so over here. God is not like that. Because he is love, he is always love. What that means is all of his other attributes and actions and behaviors are done in love, including his judgment. All of it is consistently an act of love. When he judges, he judges in love. So as light that exposes sin, as fire that consumes it, all of that is an expression of his love. It's all connected. Do you find it loving when you see, let's say, a father um, neglecting to discipline his kid and not really caring that they're getting into trouble and doing things that are harming them? Don't you question the love of that father for that kid? Right? The scriptures teach us that God disciplines the ones that he loves. That's what a loving father does. That's what a loving person does. If somebody that you love is being hurt or harming themselves, it should grieve you. God is broken about our sin. And because of his love for us, he's not going to allow us to remain there. He does something to save us. He initiates and he does it through the cross. Furthermore, we tend to not like the idea of God's wrath because we come at it as sinners and we're thinking the wrath is against me. But what happens if you're the victim? What happens if somebody does a great harm against you? If God is just love, but not a judge, your temptation will be to get your own vengeance, right? To, to avenge this wrong. God says, don't do that. Vengeance is mine. And he's a just judge. But our temptation will be, 
If he just goes, love, 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 don't worry about that. But you're the victim. You can't let that go. You need a way to be able to forgive. And part of that is knowing that God will deal with it in his way, in a loving way, in the right way. If I had to avenge somebody that sinned against me, I'm sure I wouldn't do it right. Even if I tried, honestly tried to, my heart would skew it in my favor. I would tip the scales towards me every time. God does not. He's not like that. He's consistent, totally consistent. So you find in the scriptures the, the, the type of psalms which the scholars call the imprecatory psalms where David and the others cry out to God, break the teeth of my enemies, cast their children against the stones. And it's, a very, it's awful to read those things and we, and we get uncomfortable about it. But see, recognize he's speaking, David is speaking out of human pain, crying out to a God who loves and is a just judge. And it's okay to cry out for justice because God will do it appropriately. He will handle it right. And so if you're on the victim side, you have a problem if God's not wrathful or a judge, if he's just loving. It's when you're on the sinning side or you're the perpetrator that you want God to just be loving and just not, you know, that's, what, that's where we get uncomfortable about it. So the first reason that we should love one another is because God is love. Because God is love. The second reason is that God loved us and sent his son. So think about the parable of the unmerciful servant. Jesus takes this very seriously. And he tells a parable about someone who's been forgiven a huge debt. In fact, the numbers that Jesus uses to compare two servants in this parable are a gazillion to one. The actual literal word he uses is a a servant was in debt to his master by 10,000 talents. And you have to understand that a talent is a, a sum of money equal to 20 years wages for a typical laborer. Whatever, whatever, I don't know what the, the current um, minimum rate is for pay right now, but multiply that out 40 t- hours a week times 52 weeks a year minus two weeks for vacation and go, go out 20 years, that then times it by 10,000. You owe someone a gazillion dollars, let's say. You don't have to actually do the math. You get the point. Jesus was saying it's a gazillion. And then there's another one. Okay, so the first one comes to his master and says, forgive me, forgive me, I promise I'll pay it back. Of course, there's no chance ever that that person could pay it back. And the master's merciful and says, I forgive your debt. Then on the way out, he sees someone that owes him a different amount of money. The word that Jesus uses in that parable, this is in Matthew 18, by the way, is 100 denarii. And a denarii is one day's wage. So, you know, seven months worth of work. You owe me that. Pay me, pay me, he says. And he calls the jailer and he puts them in jail because of it and he cries out and makes a big stink. And the other servants are incensed about this because they see the gross injustice of it. They see how wrong it is to have received such great mercy and not extend it. And so what will the master do? Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, he says, the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, there's that word in the New Testament, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. Then Jesus says this, and these are the kind of, this next verse is the kind that we skip over when we read our Bible. We don't like it. Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And see, in the New Testament, we want to just skip over those kind of verses. We don't like those. But, but John's reason for us having brotherly love to one another and caring for, and agape-type love, let us love one another, 
is because of the kind of love that God has shown us in the cross. So one, because God is love. Two, because he has loved us in the cross. And then the third is that God loves in and through us, through us. So look at verse 12. He says, John uh, John writes, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So no one has ever seen God. So the way that God revealed himself is he sent his son. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the father. Jesus told his disciples. Our problem though is he ascended. Somewhere in the physical universe, Jesus in bodily form is present. He's here by his spirit, but he's not here in a way that we can really see him. So what John says is, you should love one another because when you do it, people will see God. That's how they see God. They see him in you loving one another. So love one another for those three reasons. We must learn to love one another by focusing on this great truth, by occupying ourselves with greatness, by thinking about who God is and the significance of the cross. You know, there's a tension in our lives that we are sinners and we still sin. And yet God, as I started this service, I said, God will never not love you. There's nothing that can separate you from his love. And so what happens is when you come as a sinner into the presence of a holy God, he will never accept whatever that sin is in your life. So what he does is he convicts you of it. His Holy Spirit makes it feel weighty on you. Your own conscience is pointing fingers against you. It will be this big glaring thing in your life because it's hurting you, because God can't bear it. He doesn't want it in his presence. He's, his wrath is against it. So what he's done is he's made a way for you to say, I repent, I lay that thing down. I want it to be gone from my life so that I can have a clean conscience before you and stand in your presence. That's the invitation. That's amazing. It's amazing that God would let anyone come into his presence. Not that some don't come in. It's amazing that, that anyone can. The final thing is we can't really know God's mercy until we embrace both his love and his wrath. If you think he's all love, but don't get the wrath part, then you don't understand the kind of mercy he's extended to you and you won't worship him for it. Understanding that God is love and has wrath against sin will help you worship him better you will find yourself standing on holy ground in his presence. Your mind will be occupied with greatness. Your heart will praise him for it. So let's talk to him about that right now. And let's thank him for who he is. Lord, I recognize your holiness and it's a humbling thought to even stand here. All of these scholars I've been reading on these topics recognize their inadequacy to fully describe you. And yet pointing to you is helpful. You've given us your word. Help us to have true thoughts of you. Help us to know you as you've revealed yourself to us. And I pray for the sake of the world that you would help us love better. Help us love the way that you love, with agape love, not for what we get in return, but just simply because you've loved us first. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you now to kneel if you are able as we join in the prayers of the people. Let's pray.